Our scripture reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. That reading may be found in the Pew Bible on page 967. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10 and follow along as I read just a few verses from there. Matthew 10, beginning in verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we invoke your blessing on us at this juncture. Everybody in this room is needy. We're all needy. We need you to touch us. We need you to bless us. I need you to overcome my inabilities and make your word be heard. They all listening need you to soften their hearts. All of us need soft hearts toward you. All of us, all of us need the work of your spirit in our lives. We need to be made to understand. We need to be made to see. And seeing and understanding, we made, need to be moved finally to love you for who you are and for the gracious Savior you've given us in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Some of the most familiar and famous Christmas words in the English-speaking world are these words. Peace on earth, goodwill toward men. That's the King James Version's unfortunate translation of a verse that probably better says, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. But Henry Wadsworth Longfellow wrote a poem during the Civil War. Now it's a famous song that says, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. 
Now, Wadsworth's poem was during the Civil War, like I said, and things weren't going well, and he was lamenting the fact that while the bells of peace rang on earth, they didn't seem to have any peace. And his poem concluded with the confidence that God's not asleep, and before all is said and done, there will be peace on earth because the right would prevail. And that was Wadsworth's way of saying this war will finally be over. Turns out that Wadsworth's, or what's his name, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, I keep calling him Wadsworth, his version of peace on earth is actually a little bit closer to Jesus' words about his own mission. Peace is going to come after the conflict is finally over, it turns out. Except Jesus put it very bluntly, didn't he? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So what does Jesus mean? I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Now we're in a Christmas series called The Gospel According to Jesus. We're examining some explicit statements that the Lord Jesus Christ made on this earth when he was here about why he came. Today, we're considering these words that Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So I wonder if you know what Jesus is talking about. Bringing a sword. And I wonder if you'd be interested in how it is that Jesus bringing a sword is still good news at Christmas time, because it is. And it's good news all the time. So I want to invite you to consider with me what the Bible says in the hope that you will know these words of Jesus to be good news for you today, and that you'll know what to do with these words of Jesus as well. Now, the theme of our message, as I put it on that outline in your bulletin, is this. Jesus Christ's rescue of sinners, justly separated from God, necessarily divides people as it cuts across humanity like a sword. Now, we have to come at this question about Jesus bringing a sword and people being divided from the right starting point. If you look at that outline I gave you, I commend it to you for you to follow along. Really, the first three out of four points are us just trying to quickly sum up how you have to frame the question if you want to answer it right. What is this business about Jesus bringing a sword? So the first point is that sin has cut sinners off from God. We got this in our recent sermon series in Genesis, right? The man that God made and put on trial disobeyed God, and he suffered the consequences of his sin. It says the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden. So that exile of the sinful man meant that the man was divided from God. And that's, that's not all. It wasn't just that guy. Adam's fall into sin on behalf of all humanity covered all humanity's being cut off from God. All humanity was divided from God on that day in Adam. We were all cut off. And the Bible makes it plain to us that us being divided from God, separated from God, cut off, is the sinner's own fault and you should own up to that today. Let me tell you how God phrased it in Isaiah when he was preaching against his own people for their own sin. Isaiah 59, God described the scenario of Israel's exile this way. He said, 
Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That summed up the condition of Israel and of everybody, all mankind, estranged from God, and it's all the sinner's fault. It's your sin that's made a separation between you and God. Now, that's the way the Bible also talks about the eternal state of mankind. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verses 9 and 10 describes those whom the Lord Jesus will come back and judge. And it says this, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his mind. So, Sinners are separated from God now and headed for permanent separation from God. That's how God describes the sinner's position. And that's the backdrop to Jesus' words. Because Jesus is talking about what God's going to do to rescue separated sinners. Do you see? And it turns out the Bible shows us that God's salvation, which he graciously purposes to do, has always divided sinful humanity from those whom he is redeeming. It started in Genesis. Remember, the promise of salvation was a promise of enmity between two seeds. Remember those verses? I will put enmity between your seed and the serpent's seed, he said to the woman. And that struggle would go forward because there's a salvation promise in it that requires the struggle between the two seeds. Sin separates you from God, and your salvation, it turns out, must separate you, therefore, from the world. That's the way it works. It, it's always been that way that God's salvation separates. God's saved people have always been separate. Uh, in Isaiah 52, the Lord said it. Rather bluntly, in that uh, passage, it says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. When God saved his people Israel out of exile and slavery, they came out, right? They came out from among the, the unclean people, to be a separate people. That's why Psalm 95 gives us the language of the delivered saying, he's our God, we are his people, we are the sheep of his hand. If you read the whole Old Testament, even the wisdom literature always presents the world to us this way. The first Psalm is often called the two ways because in all the wisdom literature, there are these two ways that are laid out. There's the way of the Lord. It is the way of life as opposed to death. It is the way of righteousness as opposed to wickedness. It is the way of light as opposed to dark, but it's the way of the Lord as opposed to all the other ways. Those are the two ways, the Lord's way and all the other ways. Two groups represented by that. Now, all that sets up Jesus coming to be the Savior of the world. That's the thing that Jesus entered into for us. Jesus came to accomplish the rescue that God promised 
to cut off and divided from him sinners. He comes to bring back the exiles that are pictured in Israel. He comes to bring sinners back to God, to bring the man back to the life of God in the garden. And so necessarily his salvation has always redrawn the boundaries for mankind. How could it be otherwise? It always redraws the boundaries. The cross of Jesus Christ bridges the gap between God and man. Sinners are cut off, but God has stepped in to bring sinners back to himself. That passage in Isaiah 59 uh, that I quoted about your sins, making a separation between you and God. The same Lord went on to say, the same uh, prophet went on to say, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede than his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. That's God coming and promising to save his people by himself. The cutoff sinners couldn't bring themselves back. God had to bear his own right arm and step in and save them and bring them back. And Jesus Christ is God's bared right arm. He's the one that came to bring sinners back. He's the seed of the woman who overcomes the seed of the serpent. He's the one that overcomes the divide that separates. Jesus is the one that calls the father's sheep out and makes them into his own flock. He's the one that sets sinners on the way of the Lord and takes them off the path of death and the path of wickedness, putting them on the path of life, the path of righteousness. All that. It's why it's necessary that Jesus Christ would divide humanity. How could it be any other way? Now, the Lord Jesus gives us a very graphic picture of this in Matthew chapter 25. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, and it might be familiar to many of you, but it's probably the most graphic picture I can think of that explains how God's salvation in Christ divides humanity. Because in Matthew 25, Jesus says when he comes back to consummate, to finish his kingdom, he's going to separate all the peoples of the world into two groups. And in that passage, he calls them the sheep and the goats. He said he's going to separate people like a shepherd separates sheep from goats. And he says, here's how you can recognize who the sheep are. All the ones that he separates into sheep he says, oh, you were the ones that, that loved me and you did good to me and you served me and you were kind to me. And they said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, when you did it to these other, these sheep of mine, you were doing it to me because you're my sheep and that's what my sheep do. They love each other and that's how they love me and that's part of them loving me. And so I want you to enter into the kingdom that the Father has prepared for you, for me, for us. And then he says to the goats, he says, oh, you haven't loved me at all. They're like, what are you talking about? We, we never even saw you. He says, oh, every time you were rotten and you ignored, rotten to all these people of mine, you showed yourselves to belong to the goats over here. That's the marker. That's who you were. And so he says, depart from me. And he casts them into eternal torment because Jesus makes it plain that sheep love Jesus and they love his sheep. Goats hate Jesus, and they hate his sheep. 
It's true now. It's always been true. Salvation brings division with hatred upon the saved. It always has and it always does and it always will. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't stop right here in the middle of this stunning picture of Jesus separating humanity into sheep and goats and not make another equally stunning announcement to you. Do you know that Jesus Christ, the one who's going to separate humanity into sheep and goats and consign the goats to eternal punishment, Jesus Christ has authorized from now until that day when he comes the worldwide proclamation of good news. And the good news is what we call the free offer of the gospel. It's nothing less than this. Jesus offers out of nothing but his own grace, his own generosity. He offers for people who are presently counted as goats to come over into his sheepfold and be counted as sheep. Jesus considers these lost sheep. It's generous of him to do that. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save lost sheep who deserve to be cast into eternal fire so that he might call them to himself and make them his beloved sheep who enter into life, who escape the wrath that's reserved for goats. Jesus' death on the cross pays the penalty of the sin that's deserved by goats. His obedience earns the favor that sinful goats could never achieve on their own. His resurrection gives life to his sheep. He counts them as righteous while he begins the process of causing them to leave their wicked, goatish ways and walk the path, walk the path of wisdom and righteousness and life. And I'm saying this offer extends to you today. You may have what Jesus Christ offers by faith alone. You, if you're outside of Christ, if you will turn from your sins in favor of turning to Jesus Christ, he will receive you. Faith alone will lay hold of Jesus and bind you to him, unite you to him. If you will believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today, you'll be rescued. This rescue that Jesus came to effect, you'll be rescued. So I am pleading with you, my unbelieving friend, whoever you are out there right now, I want you to know that you are presently separated from God. It doesn't matter if you feel that way or not. It doesn't really matter what you feel like your relationship with God Almighty is. What matters is whether you are under his wrath or under his favor. And the Bible assures you that if you do not belong to Jesus Christ right now, you're under God's wrath. That's where you are. But Jesus is calling. The shepherd is calling pretty generous of him. He's calling sinners like you. He's calling you out. He's calling you home. 
He's calling you back to God. The question is, will you come? Will you come to Christ? Will you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? That offer, that's a good offer. It's on the table right now. I plead with you to take Jesus at his word and come to him by faith alone. Now, we've tried to set up the question about Jesus bringing a sword by getting all that as the backdrop to it. Now we can begin to make sense of why Jesus would say, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. What are we supposed to do with Jesus saying something like that? Well, you know, I considered preaching for a while about how we ought to be careful to reach across the divide ourselves to save other sinners. And that's a good word. We ought to know if Jesus came to seek and save the lost, we ought to be, make sure we're about bringing them in too, rounding them up. But, and, and to remember in particular that Jesus' life, though he came to bring a sword, did not consist of his disdain for sinners. No, it consisted of his generosity toward sinners. So we ought to keep ourselves unstained by the world, but not to act like we have nothing to do with them because we have something to do. We have a gospel to bring to them. But here's, here's our passage. Here's the upshot. Matthew 10, the verses that I read, our foundational passage. I want to say to you as a summary heading for that, you ought to expect gospel blood to be thicker than water. Well, let's, let's look at it for just a moment. The context of Matthew chapter 10 was Jesus sending out the 12 with authority to preach the kingdom of God. And with these words that I read, Jesus is preparing them for how that's going to go. And it's not going to go well. That's what he's telling them. If you were to look at that passage in verses 13, 14, 15, you find out that some people are going to receive the message that the disciples are sent with, and they're going to embrace the messengers and show them hospitality and contribute to their needs. But other people are going to reject the messengers, and they're going to bring judgment on themselves. And Jesus, in verse 16, says his disciples are going out like like sheep among wolves. That's an image for you. And they need to be as wise as serpents while remaining as harmless as doves. That's very graphic. And in verses 17 to 24 there in Matthew 10, the disciples are going to get into all kinds of trouble with people because he says the world is going to hate my followers as much as they hate me. And Jesus says in verses 26 to 33, the disciples shouldn't worry about any of that. They shouldn't be afraid about any of that because God's going to be with them. Jesus is going to be with them. Jesus is going to care for them. They might even get killed, but God will reward them and vindicate them finally. And then you come right down to verse 34 where we read, and he's telling them that the expectation of enmity from the world will pointedly and painfully extend even to your own families. That's the deepest cut of all. 
Now, Jesus said he came to bring a sword. You know, the sword is a weapon of war. It normally stands for death. When Jesus says he came to bring peace and not a sword, he does not mean that he wants you to take up the sword against his enemies to kill them. He means that you should expect them to want to kill you. And here's the point he really is driving home. The people whom you love the most will be the ones who hate you the most if they remain on the other side of this great divide. So long as they're over there with the goats and not over here with the sheep, they will cut you. They will cut you. And he warns his followers, he says, you cannot, you must not love them more than God. You cannot value them more than you value Jesus. You must not pursue having them at all costs and still trying to have Jesus. He says it's not ever going to work that way. They will oppose you. And it is unworthy of Jesus for you to put them ahead of him. That's what he's saying. You should expect this. You should expect nothing less than this. I gave you the heading in your outline. Gospel blood is thicker than water. I said that because I'm attempting to reclaim an old saw, an old idiom <clears throat> that gets misused. You know, you've heard it. People usually say, well, you know, blood's thicker than water. And what they mean is family ties are stronger than other kinds of associations and other kinds of ties. But that's exactly backward from the original idiom. And I'd like you to know that because the original saying was the blood of the covenant is thicker than the water of the womb. Which would be to say in secular terms, oaths and commitments and promises that you take on voluntarily are actually more binding than relationships caused by the accident of your birth. Now, Christ's salvation is a blood oath. We call it the new covenant in Christ's blood. He is under oath to God and we are bound to him by blood. Gospel blood is thicker than water. The bond between Christ and you by his blood oath is stronger than the bond of birth family relationships. God's blood oath to you in Christ and your response of faith to him in Christ has bound you to the Savior with a bond stronger than any this world can boast. His blood defines your group. His blood defines your loyalty. His blood defines your love. So Jesus just says what ought to be obvious. Do not expect them to love you. Even your family. 
Do not be surprised when they turn against you for following me. I came to bring a sword. I'm cutting out a people for myself. Don't be surprised when the people who are not part of my people turn on you. You see, Jesus came to bring a sword because Jesus came to make you his. And in Matthew, Jesus says that's all part of cross-bearing. This is part of losing your life for the sake of Christ. You come to Jesus, dear ones, and you lose a lot of people along the way. It just happens. And you don't have to try to soften that this morning. Just let it be what it is. They don't love him, so they don't really love you. And you love him so much that you don't need anybody else to love you. I just believe you would do so well in your life if you would be able to stop acting like you need anything but Jesus. The minute believers truly start living like they don't need anything but Jesus in this world, come, they come to find out, well, I have everything in this world that I need. And you do well to get there. There's, a, there's another implication, and it's from that scripture reading that Christopher did for us. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18, which people maybe scratched their head as to why we read that. Chris did this week when I sent him the reference. He texted me. Is that, you sure about that? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure about that. Uh, because the gist of 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18 is don't be yoked unequally. Don't be partnered. Don't be bound up. Don't be in fellowship with unbelievers. See, those verses are not primarily about marriage, although that's what you've heard all your life. Unequally yoked means Christian, don't marry non-Christian. That's a good application of that verse, but it's not really the context. The passage isn't particularly about marriage. It's about being a Christian. It's about being a believer. It's about what group you belong to. And that becomes obvious when you listen to the passage and hear the, the why that's in it. There's a why in the passage. Don't be partnered. Light and dark don't have fellowship. The, the temple of the Lord and demons don't have anything in common. You read down what God says and it turns out he's saying, don't be bound up with them because... You are the temple of the living God. And because you are his people. And, and because he welcomes you. And, and because he's a father to you. And you're his sons and daughters. And he's brought you into his family. His family is your family. And those unbelievers are not in it. So don't be bound up with them. Now, one takeaway from this is you're not going to have to work and you shouldn't be working at pushing people away for Jesus' sake. All you have to do is be earnest to strive after following him 
and embracing his people. Because, see, you don't have to work so much at being set apart from the world. You really need to lean into being set apart for the Lord. You hear the difference? Ferguson's book, Devoted to God, articulates the idea that holiness is not defined intrinsically as separation from something. It's defined as devotion to something, which then necessarily results in separation from as well. The relationship between devotion to and separation from is simply this. The more you are devoted to one thing, the less you are proportionally devoted to another thing. That's not hard math. Holiness is not so much about saying no to sin and the world as it is about saying yes to God in Christ. And a positive devotion to God necessarily accomplishes separation from sin and separation from the world. And you're going to find it so much easier and so much more helpful to focus on saying yes to God instead of on saying no to sin. Saying yes to the people of God results in saying many no's to the people of this world too. And when you pursue the love of God in Christ, that will necessarily help you obey his command. Do not love the world or the things of the world. You don't have to work so hard at pushing people and worldly things away from you. Just lean into going after him and you'll find yourself leaving them behind. And dear ones, I'm here to say to you, it is good news that Jesus came to claim us for his own. Aren't we delighted to be the people who bear his name? To be the people who say, we are the sheep of your hand. We are the temple of your dwelling. And isn't he worthy of our singular and passionate devotion? And isn't all that worth the cost of anything or anybody we must leave behind for Jesus' sake? Jesus' mission to come to this world to bring a sword is very good news. It means he came to save you. And we rejoice in his salvation. Thanks be to God that Jesus came to bring a sword so that he separates out for himself a people from the mass of sinful humanity, a people for his own possession. May God give us all the grace to lose our lives, to see that for what it is, and lose our lives in favor of having Jesus. Dear ones, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for Jesus, our Savior. Thank you that he has come to make us his own. Thank you. Thank you that he has come to bring the sword that results in us being the sheep of your hand. We're grateful for that. We praise you for it in Jesus, our Lord's name. Amen.